have a spooktacular show for you today. I guess it's not our pre-Halloween show because Monday is actually Halloween, but... But this I won't be here. You won't be here. This is expansive Halloween today. My main Halloween party is today and over the weekend, so I feel like I'm getting in the spirit you already. Got, you got to tell the people what you're going as, Robbie. Uh, I'm, I'm going to save that for the end of the okay, show. they got to right. watch the whole show. Fair, they wanna, fair enough. If they want to know about that. What else do we have going on? Well, before we get to that big reveal, David Zweig will join us to discuss new data on pandemic-related learning losses across the country. Plus, we'll get into the fallout from the Fetterman-Oz debate with our rising panel. But first, new Commerce Department data released this morning shows the U.S. economy grew 2.6% in quarter three, the first sign of growth after six months of heavy declines. However, more than half of Americans are considering taking on extra jobs to be able to pay their bills, according to a new study by Qualtrics. As the cost of living continues to climb, working families are struggling to keep up. According to the poll, nearly 70% of working parents say their pay simply isn't enough to pay the bills. According to a recent Brookings Institution estimate, the cost of raising a child through high school has surged more than $26,000 from two years ago. That's horrible. Uh, with the economy front and center this midterm season, President Biden is set to make his final pitch to midterm voters in Syracuse today by bashing Republicans' inflation strategy, or lack thereof. According to the White House, the president plans to say that Republicans' economic plans, which Biden has dubbed the mega MAGA trickle-down economic plan. That sounds like a state lottery. <laughs> What's the total this week, Vanna? <laughs> well, he says that will only increase inflation and benefit the super wealthy. Uh, and with the election day just right around the corner, is it too little too late? Quote, I'm a little skeptical that a closing argument can change the narrative of the race, one policy consultant told The Hill. The cake is likely baked at this point in terms of what people think. And, of course, some people are already voting. There's yeah, voting going on. People are at the polls. Um, Betterman better hope a lot of people were already at the polls before uh, that debate, I would say. Um, yeah, the, the kind of... You know, we're trying to read the tea leaves. Who knows? We'll know for sure in you know a few days. But uh, things have really shifted back toward Republicans. Um, I, I'm not sure exactly why that is. Obviously, we have a bunch of yeah, suspicions polls, for why. They're, they're so fickle, and everything is they always so close. And to the extent that just a month or two ago, we were talking about how fortunes looked really up for Democrats because we we're riding high on turnout uh, or, or prospective turnout because of abortion and people being so riled up over the Dobbs decision. Then it flipped back to Republicans. I saw a story yesterday about how polls were showing some signs of hope for Democrats again. The point is it's going to be very close. And there's it's an argument that close. it shouldn't necessarily be this close. When, look, I think that MAGA million dollar whatever lotto is a ridiculous framing device. But it is well overdue for Democrats to be talking in the affirmative about the effect, the fact that Republicans don't actually have an inflation reduction plan in the affirmative mm -hmm. outside of their stated plan to cut Social Security and Medicare, which I covered in a radar earlier this week. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're talking about wanting to do that, though. We disagree on this. I, I don't. Maybe that is what they actually want to do. They're not talking. They're well, not I mean, they, claiming they, they're going to they do are, that. They are talking about it. And I quote several Republicans in the course of my radar who have explicitly said that. So there's a Republican Economic Commission that contains three quarters of House Republicans that have all committed to this plan. It's in the Eric Levitt's piece in New York Magazine that people should read uh, that was also posted earlier this week. But they're, they're not really hiding the ball about it in terms of what they're talking about internally as an organization. What they are doing is hiding the ball about it as they make their pitch to the American public which is all about the cultural issues. And so as I mentioned in my radar, 
all of the Republican press covered that economic plan by framing it as an immigration plan to shut down a porous border or a plan to restore or protect American family values and things like that. And they don't talk about what the actual economic premise is, which is these cuts to Social Security well, and Medicare. Conservative media covers Republican plans in very f favorable language, as, as does progressive and mainstream media coverage of Democratic plans. Well, unfortunately, you know, what that means is that if Republican media is covering these plans inaccurately and Democratic media isn't covering these plans at all of the American people who are very invested in not having their Social Security uh, eligibility rate age raised to 70 or their Medicare eligibility uh, raised to 67 are going to be caught really unawares when, as it's likely to be the case, mm -hmm. a Republican House comes into power and these policies really are on the chopping block. I mean, a Republican House comes into power and what? Ends the Ukraine uh, funding? Brings back, brings down some of the spending that American people don't even support? Um, we'll see, maybe. That's kind of what they're promising to do. Maybe, and, but a majority uh, of the caucus also, the Republican caucus also doesn't support ending the war in Ukraine. We'll see, we'll see how that is. That's true now. I, that might be, I think that's going to be changing. Um, I. I, I, I think uh, on this issue is all of the ideological sorting. Uh, foreign policy is like the last thing to sort itself neatly. It's been it, it was like which side has which view has has remained kind of messy on that issue, unlike all other issues for a long time. This might be the last election for which this is the case. I think the anti-war faction in American political life will be solidly and firmly and almost completely within the Republican oh, I, Party. I think that is already true, but that doesn't mean that anywhere close to a majority of Republicans yeah. supports that. Again, overwhelming majorities of Republicans supported these Ukraine aid packages. Only 11 out of 50 senators uh, voted against it among the Republicans, and it was a minority. Donald Trump was well. able to uh, scramble the Republican consensus on not every issue, but some issues virtually overnight by loudly proclaiming and then demonstrating that this is what the actual Republican voters wanted. And he did, he already did a lot of that work on sure. foreign policy. I think this could be the other. Uh, he, he, he led the way, and yeah. I think. I think the rest of that could be accomplished. We'll see. I wish we could have a Donald Trump of the left who could do the same thing, but we saw them all bend the knee really horrifically. <laughs> I know. We're going to talk about that more. I think uh, <laughs> still so horrifying. Still, <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. And you know, I, I've seen Republican. I saw Tulsi Gabbard uh, come out and make a statement, doubling down and pointing out what Democrats really teed up for her mm -hmm. that. They have cleared the way for Republicans, as you said, conservatives, generally speaking, however, Tulsi is identifying right now, to be the vanguard of the anti-war movement. And to the extent that progressives or liberals or squad members or whoever think that that's an argument being made in bad faith, it doesn't really matter because they're the only one making the argument. And the lane is clear for them to step in and actually stand up and channel some of this energy. In fact, um, I, as I, I think we're going to talk about a little later in the show, even the Pod Save America guys <laughs> have said, hey, the the left needs to not let the right solely occupy this lane. These are Obama, former Obama speechwriters yeah. who are acknowledging this truth. Yeah. We'll see if anyone's going to wake up and listen. Well, well, we'll keep following all the election coverage until uh, we get to the day. I still, I still do think you're right. It's so close in so many races. I candidate uh, candidate quality does matter. Like the, the the gubernatorial candidate in Arizona, Carrie Lake, is polling so much better in her matchup versus Blake Masters, the Senate candidate. The same is true in Georgia. Um, it, it slightly, it feels like slightly different choices on the by Republican primary voters would make this a blowout mm. for certain instead mm. of a nail biter. Could be a blowout. 
could be something else, and, and it is a nail biter. Wouldn't have been if there was a little bit more candidate to support. Yeah. I continue to think that's the case, but yeah. could be wrong. Um, looking forward to what's on your radar. Stay tuned for that. Brianna, what's on your radar? I don't know how to sugarcoat this, Robbie, so I'll just say it. It seems clear that the Democratic Party is over. I saw the writing on the wall and left after the Obama years. Probably, uh, he was probably the best the party had to offer, and he revealed himself to be a truly disappointing character. You could drive a Bronco through the gap between his campaign promises and reality, and 14 years after he promised hope and change, we still have no campaign finance reform, Roe isn't codified, and instead of using his incredible political gifts to advance the interests of the communities he was supposed to represent, he's now angling to buy a basketball team. <laughs> I guess it's easier to crush a future strike if you own a franchise. Now that's not to say he did nothing. It's meaningful, truly, to not be denied health insurance because of a pre-existing condition. It matters that 35 million Americans got insurance in the first place through the ACA, but it wasn't enough. I was hopeful that an independent senator from Vermont might right the ship. Bernie stood up to Barack Obama when he threatened to cut Social Security. He truly was unbought by corporate money and was willing to call out the banks that destroyed American homeowners in 2008, even while Barack Obama was consulting with those banks to pick his cabinet. But even Bernie failed to take the type of stand that could have rescued poor and working class people from the corporate duopoly. Push come to shove, when he should have been fighting for our lives at the start of the pandemic, he told America that Biden would be a good president, that he wasn't corrupt, and he endorsed him within days of dropping out of the race, de declining to even withhold his endorsement for anything at all. The populist left is such a non-entity that it couldn't go 24 hours without bending the knee to liberal know-nothings, withdrawing a letter, the most milquetoast critique of Biden's policy toward Russia-Ukraine, the letter didn't ask to withdraw aid at all. It merely asked, Oliver Twist style, please, uh, may I have some peace? <laughs> and progressives still couldn't stick the landing. But despite all of that, libs are gearing up to blame powerless progressives for what they anticipate will be a disastrous midterm result. Here's Chuck Todd this week on MSNBC. If Democrats come up short in some of these places, I think there's going to be a lot of finger pointing. Progressives are going to take some heat for forcing some certain nominees in certain states um, that may that may have been less electable than other nominees could have been the defund the police movement all of this i'm sorry which precarious democratic candidate said they wanted to defund the police was it fetterman the guy who famously chased down a black man vigilante style at gunpoint because he thought he'd committed a crime he hadn't committed a crime. Or Stacey Abrams, who after you know flirting with actual progressivism for about half a second, has run hard on fun the police harder, even though it's probably costing her black male votes in Georgia. Midterms haven't even happened yet. And the Democratic Party gatekeepers, whose purpose is to run cover for the complete and total political malfeasance of liberals, are already in excuse-making mode. Their diagnosis of why Dems are flailing, same as always, Somehow, it's progressives' fault. The blame, however, lies squarely at Biden's feet. For one, he's done next to nothing about inflation, punting action to the Fed, which acts independently and whose only plan is to purposefully cause a recession by raising interest rates. 
In an article published yesterday in Vox, reporter Rachel Cohen asks, is the cure for inflation worse than the disease? The Federal Reserve's interest rate hikes mean 1.2 million people will become unemployed by the end of 2023. Others estimate that number could be as high as 3.2 million Americans out of a job. Quote, I wish there was a less painful way to do that, said Fed Reserve Chair Jay Powell. There isn't. Oh, well, I guess. Sucks to be you. The pain is the point, by the way. They are trying to slow down consumption by literally taking away your salary. The super consuming rich, though, no one's trying to curb their consumption. No, a wealth tax is firmly off the table. As are the types of interventions Europeans have fought for and secured, like a cap on energy prices. Biden's flack say, don't blame him. He did the Inflation Reduction Act, but the Inflation Reduction Act was fact-checked by the Congressional Budget Office, and guess what? It basically does nothing to reduce inflation. And although the Democratic lawmakers introduced a bill in May that would seek to address one of the roots of the problem, banning price gouging, it hasn't passed the Senate and won't pass the Senate with the current congressional composition, a composition that, if polls are to be believed, is only going to get worse, redder, next year. It's no wonder, then, that Republicans are considered to be better than Democrats on inflation, even though their stated plan consists of cutting Social Security and Medicare. After all, how can it get any worse? We know the main driver of inflation is corporate greed. California populist Katie Porter made this case before Congress last week, and a fact check by the Economic Policy Institute and the Roosevelt Institute proved her right. Quote, a large portion of price increases are going to profits for larger corporations and services like groceries, furniture, and cars. Katie Porter's charts don't lie. But what are Dems going to do about it? Nothing. They will barely even talk about it. The price of a bag of Snickers has more than doubled, Bernie tweeted recently, but Republicans want to give the Mars family, who became 44% richer during the pandemic and are now worth $106 billion, a tax break of up to $42 billion by repealing the estate tax. Nice tweet, but without the message discipline to make sure anyone not terminally online doesn't uh, seize it, just it doesn't exist in the Democratic Party. Good thing they've been spending so much energy messaging about saving democracy. This is a moment for real, independent, populist progressives to stand up to the plate, but they're nowhere to be found. This week, AOC ignored the progressive media that put her on the map, choosing once again to speak on a large liberal platform for people who like her as far as she's a young, articulate Latina who doesn't criticize Biden too much. During her Pod Save America interview, she said a number of insightful things that were, in fact, an accurate diagnosis of what Democrats are doing wrong. And you should listen to that full interview. There's good stuff in there. But she also said this. Special interests. Um, our entire political system is designed to be very, very acquiescent to money. And um, the difference is that Republicans, that's not a that is part of Republican ideology, is to support corporate America. I think the Democratic Party, we really struggle because we're supposed to be the party of the working class. But in reality, there's a lot in our big tent, it's highly segmented. And I think that there is a lot of objections from that within our party, which prevents us from being as forceful on these issues as we can be. 
this is the problem with left electeds. They're often spot on and even more often are so close to saying something true, but then miss. Look, our politics are being killed by special interests, both Republicans and Democrats. But AFC weirdly pivots when she gets to the Democrats, saying that the real struggle, after, after saying that the Republicans have this problem with spe special interests, that the real struggle for Democrats is the party's diversity. The problem, she says, is that we're a big tent. I mean, give me a break. How can alienated voters, of which there are a huge and growing number, begin to understand that they should be following you, that left populism offers more than right populism? that you have real solutions if you refuse to call out your own party as bought and sold too. She used to call Dems out. It was why we loved her. But if this is the best the Democrats have to offer, I have to think that there's no hope. Look, I'm not optimistic, but I hope to God that the forward party, the green party, or even libertarians can get their act together and figure out how to mount a real challenge to the two-party duopoly because things are looking bleak. We're in a world where the right offers up a fake social conservative who's been alleged to pay for multiple abortions while he's simultaneously playing the choir boy. And the liberals are offering up a fracking loving vigilante who likes to citizens arrest black men in his spare time. And neither of them, for, for very different reasons that engender very different levels of empathy, can really articulate their platform, much less inspire the kind of political revolution this country needs. We are on a precipice, and I, for one, am scared, and I'm tired, and I'm seeing protests getting more and more extreme on both sides of the aisle, and honestly, even though I disagree with some of the choices people are making, I get it. Riots, after all, are the language of the unheard, both on 1-6 and during the George Floyd protests. We have everything we need to truly make America great again. The people were never the problem. The problem has always been elite gatekeepers. Will anyone stand up and show the people how much power we really have? Or do I have to look forward to the Herschel versus Fetterman ticket? <laughs> or Herschel versus Fetterman in 2028? Well, I hope not. <laughs> I mean, I know that we, we talked about that uh, debate a little bit yesterday. And... You know, some people seem to have come away with the impression that I thought that Fetterman did a good job. No, that's not the point. The point is that it doesn't matter if Fetterman does a good job or if Herschel Walker is a complete hypocrite. No, nothing matters other than that people want control of the Senate. Republicans want their people in control. Democrats want their people in control. And there's good reasons for that on both sides for ideological reasons. And so increasingly, the quality of the candidate just doesn't matter. You've made your critiques of Republicans making bad uh, yeah. candidate choices and not having these downstream effects and making this a closer race, a closer midterm battle than it needs to be. But the real, the real people suffering here are the American people who increasingly have no one that's actually reflecting their interests in Congress. Mm. Yeah, I, I wish it mattered more. As I actually do. I like some Republicans better than others. I like some Democrats better than others. Um, there's a, actually on the Republican side, there is some. Well, on both sides, uh, there are differences in, uh, in, in views and in intellectual traditions. Um, the, the Republicans are going through such a transformation right now to a more worker-friendly um, part. I, I don't roll your eye. Who does corporate America prefer these days? It's, it's Democrats. It's not. It's Democrats. It, 
I don't know, maybe vibes. Democrats maybe based are on, becoming wait a minute, the... Robbie, maybe based on vibes and like whoever says something is woke or something. But if you look at Open Secrets and look at who these corporations are giving to, they now, as always, are giving equally Hillary Republican Clinton. and Democratic. Hillary Clinton's not running for office, Robbie. What? They're now, she as always, better than... they're now, as always, giving to both they parties an equal the, measure. There are sure. certain industries that favor Republicans, oil and gas, those kinds of industries, and there are certain industries that slightly favor Democrats. Mm -hmm. But all of these corporations give to both parties because no matter who wins, they win and the people lose. And that's the point. We have to stop fighting this left-right game. I'm not interested in playing Republicans are marginally worse than Democrats. That's a, that's a liberal's game. I'm not a liberal. Well, okay. It's easy to say we have to start fighting this left-right game, but we... But we have to vote for every Democrat, no matter what, because I, they are I, I Democrats. Don't think, I don't yeah. vote for Democrats. That's the whole point. Yeah. I opened this thing saying, I haven't voted for a Democrat since Barack Obama. That's yeah. not my bag. My, my frustration is that I feel like every I'm time... I've voted for Republicans since Ron Paul in the primaries. <laughs> I, I feel like every time that I... I, I, I criticize Democrats, I criticize liberals, but I feel con and, and, and there are meaningful differences here, right? Like I don't want there to be a federal ban on abortion. So like I completely understand people who want to sign up and, and vote for Fetterman or vote for, for whomever. But at some point, there has to be a break. At some point, progressives need to try to take over the Democratic Party the way that Trump and Trumpism has taken over the Republican Party. Or someone like Andrew Yang needs to figure out that they need that the, that where they're needed is not to create another corruptible party, but to really say we're not going to take the corporate dollars that have made both parties so beholden to corporate interests in Wall Street and actually chart a new path that people like myself, disaffected people, can actually feel comfortable joining. Look, I've said this before. I think it matters what the progressive policy we're talking about is. I think, and I, I think you concede this or agree with this to some degree, that cultural, social, progressive issues are not broadly popular. And they're also many not the subject of federal economic, policymaking. Many economic uh, progressive issues, if presented a certain way, are popular, I would say. Um, not I, I don't, The word socialism is not popular. Marxism is not popular. But giving, uh, which, which I'm, and I'm opposed to giving people who need help more help, et cetera, you can phrase it in such a way that these are popular policies. Yeah, I can see that. I, and here's the thing about the social stuff. There's no federal social policy. There's no, no the Democrats aren't no, trying to like. No, that's not true. What the, 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 some DEI stuff, some gender and race stuff is administrative. It's, uh, it's by the education department and the, and the, the, the. Like the advisory letter that Obama sent to like, don't, you know, have, you know, let people use the bathrooms that they want. That advisory letter is what you're it comparing came to. this close to abolishing the concept of female sports. This close. I'm sorry. I can't get into that with you right now. I'm not going to do this. We just did a, a block. People can't pay their bills. We're about to talk about learning loss. One of the drivers of learning loss, something like over 100,000 kids in New York City were homeless. People in the New York City public school system were homeless last year. Mm -hmm. we, don't, we have millionaires and billionaires making more money than they ever have in American history. With the pandemic, where people were suffering, being a period of time where they earned even more. There's corporate price gouging, and we can't even have a single bloody person in Congress bring up a wealth tax in this moment. The, the so-called progressives can't stand their ground and talk about ending endless wars for two seconds without bending the knee. And so I want to have a conversation about that. And I, I promise you, I'm not bringing up cultural issues. I don't care.
Keep it to yourself. Fight it for it on your local level. Do whatever you want. With, with the, you can you can do what you want with the trans girl in, in Nebraska. Mm -hmm. I can't have any control over that. That's not my job. I pray for her, and I hope that she's able to live a safe and happy life because I know that that's not how everybody feels in this country, and that really is a bummer. But things are so dire. We, sh we have to be able to focus on the big issues because the people who are in charge are depending on us not doing that. Well, we can... Keeping schools open, I agree, is a big issue, but that does impugn specifically Democratic policy priority. Fine, not even on the cultural front, on a, on a kind of social or economic front. Those were Democratic yes, priorities look, that the people I, are I very frustrated with. I think schools should with. be open, and I think that they should have ventilation systems and masks should be they available. They got billions to, of dollars to, to do so. They didn't. Actually, they, I was looking at. A, there was a fascinating. We didn't talk about it. Maybe we should have. There's a great Washington Post story on how so much of the money schools got. They didn't even bother spending. Yeah, and those are the things that we should it. be united on pushing. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's going to be harder for us to get any of those things um, enacted going forward. Um, and it's, it's a bleak time. Hmm. We'll have more Rising right after this. Stay with us. You make the, the right point that what Biden's saying is, I won't negotiate around the, the settlement that Ukraine has to accept without them. That doesn't mean we don't have things to talk to the Russians about. It just right. means Biden's not going to sit there and say, well, maybe you can keep this part of Ukraine and not that part of Ukraine. That's not going to happen. But to your point, if you don't create any space for kind of debate in the center here around this policy, you know where all the concerns about the war are going to go. They're going to go to where Kevin McCarthy took it, right? totally. which is it like, hey, I'm getting uncomfortable here. There's nuclear threats. Let's cut off the Ukrainians, right? It's a lot of money. So, yep. you know, to some of you, like some of the Ukraine stands on, on Twitter or whatever who like just, you know, pile on this stuff, you may might be creating the outcome you don't want because by Dude, punishing anybody who says let's have diplomacy, the only alternative to your position, you know, is where Kevin McCarthy's going, which is like, hey, let's cut these where Tucker Carlson is. Those were the hosts of the popular liberal podcast, Pod Save America, talking in response to the Congressional Progressive Caucus's withdrawal of a letter calling for the Biden administration to take a different approach on the Russia-Ukraine conflict. To be clear, that different approach didn't actually ask for even a cent Very of tame. funds to be withdrawn. All it said was that the aim abstractly in the ether should be toward negotiations as opposed to uh, fighting the war to the last Russian, as uh, the State Department has implied, is the ultimate plan. And here's what's so fascinating. Pod Save America is hardly known as some kind of progressive vanguard. I mean, they describe themselves as progressives in the way that liberals call no, themselves progressives. The most these establishment vanguard first, of all time. Yes. These are former Obama speechwriters right. who have now become podcast moguls and who unfortunately, fortunately, uh, really set the tone for what a lot of liberals think about what's going on in politics. And if they are even acknowledging the risks of attacking progressives the way the establishment attacked progressives and beat them yeah. down from their very modest letter this week, then it seems like there's a real problem here. Yeah, what that guy was saying, and I don't know what their names are, which one he I is, but uh, one of them has the same name as the Marvel producer, Yeah, Favreau. that's the best one, Favreau. John Favreau. Yeah. Um, no, yes. Yes, that was not him. No. He, but he was making great points, which are that, this is what I was saying in our earlier segment, the anti-war faction, just of, of political life, of politically active people who do not think this should go on forever without any input from us to try to end it, 
that faction is increasingly going to be just within the Republican Party. And that is a really interesting phenomenon. That was not the case uh, with opposition to the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Uh, that that those those are Obama alums. Obama came to power mm-hmm. to end those mm-hmm. conflicts. That is why he was the. That's why he prevailed over Hillary Clinton because she was much more associated with the votes to authorize those wars and with and with intellectual and philosophical backing of yes, those. Henry efforts. Henry Kissinger is my friend. Right. Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Obama knew the yeah. strength of a, of a... So those people should know it as well, mm-hmm. that the American people had turned on it, were not sold on these commitments. That was something that Democratic voters wanted. And then there was a faction of the Republican Party also that wanted that. Um, again, Ron Paul was very mm-hmm. successful mm-hmm. among young conservatives, particularly in some ways um, heralding the shift in the Republican Party from a neoconservative to a kind of more mixed and now to an outright kind of non-interventionist mm-hmm. uh, policy. I think this has been a tremendously good phenomenon, and it's, it, this is the one way in which the Republican Party has become more like my views <laughs> over time. In many other ways, it's moved away from my views. In this way, I think it's a good thing. But uh, the, the comparable, because of the neat ideological sorting, the comparable anti-war effort or sentiment on the Democratic side really does seem to be losing at least political Right. Salience. Well, so the point of this clip is to show that there are Democrats who are changing their mind because yeah. of the obvious yeah. reality that there is no there's no error for any of this on the left-hand side. And what I thought was interesting also about that clip, it's not that he just takes this position. He, he refers to Ukraine you, you, Ukraine flag stands? Ukraine stands. U- Ukraine stands, yeah. which is, you know... Ukraine stands sounds like it's just a different country that we, <laughs> might, we might invade for its oil or something. No, but the idea that, you know, this kind of online perception of people who have yeah. Ukraine flags and their emojis being incredibly pro-war and hawkish, uh, that, right. that kind of tacit acknowledgement says that he kind of understands what the broader zeitgeist is like in a way that is notable. And and taking that kind of a dig at people who have oriented all of their politics around having the Ukraine flag and emoji, it felt to me that they kind of got it. And so I'm a little bit hopeful. A zeitgeist that is just so misguided because the the Ukrainian forces, you can set aside what would happen in an ideal world. Like, I, I have no affection for the Putin regime. It's authoritarian and tyrannical. But we are not going to have Ukrainian forces overwhelm and defeat right. Putin and have some sweeping regime change. Um, and, and the more we think that, the more we risk some sort of nuclear escalation. So there, should, there has to be. It is not. A, it is not actually a wildly like far left or far right idea at all. It, it's not an extreme idea. It's now and it's now associated with these two positions. But the the idea itself is not extreme. That okay, we can continue to support Ukraine, but we've been doing that, and there and we we have a right to say, look, enough is going to be enough, and. We think you should really have negotiations, and we're not going to exclude Ukraine from those no- negotiations. But we have a right to say, no, 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 no we're not going to sit back patiently. Specifically, that no negotiation should happen yeah. without Ukraine being at the table. Well, former Democrat Tulsi Gabbard has weighed in on the CPC's about face while on Tucker Carlson tonight. Let's watch. These so-called progressives did a very simple thing that apparently uh, can appear to be brave in Washington these days. In that letter to President Biden, they just told the truth about how this ongoing proxy war with Russia is increasing in cost and consequences, both on the Ukrainian people, 
but also the American people here at home and how it's negatively impacting gas prices, increasing inflation, and so on. Uh, you know, the, these progressives in the letter, they didn't say stop sending aid to Ukraine now. All they said was, hey, President Biden, engage in diplomacy. Uh, and the response they got, of course, from the warmongers who control the Democrat Party in Washington was to immediately be smashed to pieces, so much so that these Democrat members of Congress cowered in the corner with fear and now have gone so far out of their way, apologizing profusely for having the audacity to call for diplomacy in this war that's putting us all at risk. Yeah. Exactly what happened. Yeah. That's a hundred percent perfect summation of what yeah. happened. And I and I called it. I got to say, I said this on my podcast about Tulsi Gabbard. I said this in a radar about Tulsi Gabbard. I've been saying, if you don't want them to be able to make the point that she just made, you have to stand up and be better about it. Democrats haven't. I should say though that the Green Party left groups who aren't associated with the Democratic Party have consistently and continue to be. Mm-hmm strongly in favor of um, peace movements and have had been had a consistent record that I would argue is inclusive of Afghanistan and the Iraq war in a way that these newer Republican moments have not mm-hmm. been. And this isn't Democrat, this is Republican. This is me saying both of these parties are in the mm-hmm. grips of militarism and that people who are frustrated with both parties or the Democrats, but also don't share politics with Republicans can find a lot of support in these other more truly progressive leftist parts of the internet and organizations. Mm-hmm. Now the Libertarian Party has been more against Absolutely. the Republican. Now Republic, some Republicans are getting on board with, uh, with you know, reconsidering our military, uh, our hawkishness, our engagements, et cetera. This is what the Libertarian Party has been urging the Republicans to do forever. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of, yes, there's a lot of third party um, set, common sense on foreign policy that was just totally absent yeah. from the bipartisan consensus for like the last 30 years. Yeah. We'll have more Rising coming up next. Since the Pennsylvania Senate debate Tuesday night, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman's campaign has raised over $2 million. Fetterman's team said some of the money will go toward a new ad featuring his opponent's, quote, extremely radical comments on abortion from the debate. The influx of donations comes after Fetterman's highly criticized debate performance, where he often fumbled his words or lost his train of thought, raising concerns about how well he is actually recovering from his stroke. ABC's Cecilia Vega asked White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre where President Biden stands on Fetterman's health. Let's take a listen. The amount of time that the president has spent with Fetterman and the conversation that is happening today in the wake of last night's debate performance, does the president have any concerns about, has he ever raised uh, either a conversation with you that you've been a part of or or with others here at the White House, um, any concerns about his health? So I'll say this, um, with in personal conversations that the president has had with the lieutenant governor, the president has found him to be impressive, uh, incredibly bright and talented person who's just as capable as always uh, to carry out uh, his office, uh, the duties of his office, as we know he is lieutenant governor currently, and has great ability and heartfelt concern for the people of the Commonwealth. And that is what uh, the president has observed himself. Uh, That is, uh, you know, as, as is the case before and is the case today. President Biden and Vice President Harris will campaign for Fetterman in Philadelphia on Friday. It's a rare occurrence as the two typically don't travel together. Joining us now to discuss is political analyst and senior lecturer on African-American studies at the University of Maryland, Jason Nichols, and senior Blankley Fellow at the Steamboat Institute and Washington editor at The Spectator, Amber Athey. Welcome. 
Thanks for having us. Amber, I'll, I'll start with you. Uh, you know, Fetterman has raised a lot of money. He is capitalizing on um, Oz's statement on abortion, which uh, imply that one's local representative should be involved in the decision on whether or not uh, you should terminate a pregnancy as opposed to a decision between you and your doctor. And a, a lot of Democrats have pointed to that as a a, a kind of a hinge issue that no matter what you think about his, his debate performance, at the end of the day, protecting the right to choose is so galvanizing and motivating that that can help him to coast through regardless of the effects of his stroke. What do you think about that? Well, I think it's true that abortion is a galvanizing issue for perhaps members of the Democratic base, but polling just simply doesn't reflect the idea that abortion is a top issue for the majority of American voters. We know those things to be um, inflation, the economy, crime, immigration, the list really goes on. And while I know there have been a lot of headlines about this $2 million that Ferdinand has raised, in the grand scheme of the spending that's going on in Pennsylvania, they're expected to spend about $40 million between Fetterman and Oz over the next week. It's really a drop in the bucket. And this late in the race, um, trying to get a good TV ad spot with that $2 million is really not going to pan out for him. Most of the good TV ad spots at this point are actually purchased. And the Democrats are king at blowing money on uh, candidates late in the game that don't really have a good shot at winning. They did this in 2020 with Hagar in Texas, with Sarah Gideon in Maine, with Amy McGrath in Kentucky. So to me, this is really kind of a desperate ploy to make it seem like Fetterman is performing better than he is, but this $2 million is not going to change the shape of the race. Hmm. Uh, Jason, what are your thoughts? You know, some of us are still processing just how bad that debate performance was, and, uh, you know, the, like the best thing you could say for it is some people are already voting. <laughs> maybe they're going to, maybe they didn't see it. Um, it was it was truly bad. How are you know, how are people who who want Fetterman to win? How are Democrats kind of processing all of this? Well, I think there are there are a few things. First of all, I, I think uh, my counterpart and I would both agree that debates don't really decide elections. We've seen that over and over again. I think throughout the country, we've seen uh, debates where one uh, candidate has outperformed the other and it probably won't make a difference in the long run. The person who I would say lost the debate may actually win uh, the race. So I'm not that concerned about it. And I also would say Pennsylvania ranks ninth in terms uh, of its elderly population. And I think some elderly people may take umbrage to hearing a physician attack his opponent's health, particularly after a stroke. Uh, I think it's also important to say that if we're gonna talk about John Fetterman's physical health, then we should probably talk about Herschel Walker's mental health uh, should be a, a, a bigger part of the discussion. You know, there's no cure for dissociative identity disorder. You can recover from a stroke, but you can treat dissociative identity disorder, but it's never cured. And if we're going to judge Fetterman's speech may, and his coherence, maybe we should do the same with Herschel Walker down in Georgia. So I think that, the, that neither of those races will be decided by debate performance or anything of the like. I, I think people know where they stand. A lot of people have already voted, as you stated, Robbie. So um, I, I don't think that that should be the worry. Uh, I think the worry should be where the political headwinds are, and they're against Democrats right now, uh, right now with, with our economy. And I think that's what people should be concerned about, but not this debate performance. I, I, I don't know that a lot of people are going to agree that Herschel Walker has some kind of condition that should preclude him 
from serving can, more can so than be Fetterman. Spe specific here. I, obviously, it, it, we all are aware, I think, at this point that now two women have accused Herschel Walker of paying uh, for their abortions, which is in conflict with the stated position on whether or not women should have the right to choose. But can you clarify what you mean about him having a dissociative identity disorder, Jason? Yeah, so uh, a long time ago, it used to be called multiple personalities. And right, you know, now it's called dissociative identity disorder. And it's caused him to, you know, behave in ways uh, that are outside of, you know, legality, as a matter of fact. Um, he is accused of putting a gun to a woman's head. And I think that should be part of our, our conversation. He's accused of saying that he wanted to have a shootout with police. Uh, so all of the thin blue line and the uh, Blue Lives Matter people, somehow that seems to go out of the window. So I think that, you know, we should have a discussion about this. Paying for abortions is, is honestly, you know, personally, even though it is hypocritical, it's not something that I should say would preclude somebody from holding office. But putting a gun to a woman's head, uh, having four children and raising none of them while you're going around and talking about the responsibility of black fathers, I think that is... Uh, something that should be part of the conversation. And again, if we're talking about health, he obviously is a person who struggles with mental health and Fetterman struggles with physical health. And there's probably you have a better chance of recovering from physical health issues than you do from mental health issues. But shouldn't he complete that recovery before he tries to run for Senate? I mean, this is a guy who's clearly struggling. I think at this point it's political malpractice to allow him to get up on that stage when he clearly is not in control of his uh, his mind to speech functions. And if we're going to play whataboutism and compare him to Herschel Walker, Herschel Walker has been very open and honest about mm -hmm. his mental health struggles, whereas the Fetterman campaign keeps uh, keeps lying or obfuscating his health issues. I mean, well, let's be honest, before the debate, the Fetterman campaign sent out a memo to reporters suggesting that he wasn't going to lose the debate because of his lack of uh, mental faculties, but because Dr. Oz was a professional TV man. Now, all of a sudden, after the debate, the line from the Fetterman campaign is that Dr. Oz was beating up on a disabled person. So which is it? Is Fetterman disabled or not? So, Amber, so I think I, it, again, mm -hmm. go ahead, Jason. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, so again, I, I think those are, are good questions, Amber, but here's the thing. The doctors that Fetterman has uh, say that his speech and auditory processing are the problem, not his mental faculties. That is the issue with Herschel Walker. He has serious mental faculties that are impaired by having dissociative identity disorder, which caused him to put a gun to a woman's head. And one of the things that I know about conservatives, and I agree with them, is that guns are not toys. They actually kill people. So him threatening a woman's life, I think, should be something that precludes somebody from holding office. He's been open about some of it, but he hasn't been open about the fact that he didn't raise his kids, the fact that he, he puts guns to women's head and he's violent with women. They're, he has they're, a also not, running, they're not running against each other, though, right? These are, right. you know, they're different but, but, races. But we, we're, talking, mean, we're talking here, and we've been talking about in earlier segments, the implication has been that the Democrats are somehow negligent in putting forward a, a candidate like Fetterman, who, by the way, had a stroke days before the primary. It wasn't as though there was a plan to have a re, uh, someone recovering from a stroke doing a competitive Senate race like this. But if we're going to talk about the negligence of the Democratic Party and all of those kinds of things, what is the Republican Party's excuse for backing a candidate like Herschel Walker, who never at any time, in my opinion, and in many people's opinion, has presented himself as having the 
knowledge, the experience, or the temperament, or the ethics to really be in that kind of a position. I think it's a lose-lose. I think there's a lot of problems across the board here, but I appreciate both of you joining us for this discussion today. It's been great. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. We'll have more Rising for you right after this. U.S. students in most states and across almost all demographics have experienced setbacks in math and reading since the start of the pandemic. According to the National Assessment of Education Progress, also known as the nation's report card, only 36% of fourth graders and 26% of eighth graders are proficient or above in math. It's the steepest decline ever recorded. When it comes to reading, only 33% of fourth graders and 31% of eighth graders are proficient or above. According to the New York Times, Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona called the results, quote, appalling and unacceptable. Journalist David Zweig tweeted, the NAEP scores and New York Times article are misleading a lot of people to conclude remote school didn't correlate with lower scores. Multiple analyses comparing districts show an overt correlation between time out of school and learning loss. Zweig joins us now to expand on this. Welcome. Hi. So help walk me through the, the misrepresentation here. What does the, the Times article say, and why do you think that people are getting it wrong? Yeah, um, so these national test scores came out, and the Times article, and I'll, quite frankly, most of the uh, media coverage um, pointed at, oh, look at this. If you look at California or different places that we're not seeing a big difference in the states that were known for having um, a higher rate of remote instruction versus in person, they weren't seeing a big difference. And a whole slew of people um, were tweeting this out. And uh, I think uh, Jennifer Rubin at Washington Post and others are saying, look, see. But the problem with that is, is that this is really kind of superficial. It's not even an analysis. That's even too you know, specific or generous of a word. It's really just a crude observation of state data. But there happen to have been a number of studies, um, at least three that I know of, um, that were carefully done uh, analyses of data, but they looked at individual districts rather than at state level. And when you look at the individual districts within a state, or multiple states, it tells a very different story. Right. I, I've seen data from uh, Emily Oster. I think that's what one of the studies you're referring to. Yeah, my understanding is when you look at that, you do see a clearer breakdown in the, the longer, uh, the, the more the schools were open in a district, they don't have the same degree of learning loss. Is that, is that accurate? So um, there, there's a study, um, Emily Oster looked at a lot of these data. Um, there was a study out of Harvard, and there's a study um, by Vladimir Kogan, who's a political scientist at Ohio State. And what they found in Kogan's research, where they looked at individual districts comparing in-person school percentage, and they found that students in districts who were fully remote were up to three times higher rates of um, I'm flipping around, but higher rates of these poor scores. There was up to three times greater loss mm -hmm. in, um, in, in the test score averages. I mean, that is a massive difference, and it tells a very different story. So we're talking about three different analyses by three different um, researchers or research groups, and they all found the same, uh, this, they all came to the same conclusion, which was that remote learning has a distinct and direct correlation with lower test scores. 
So to me, um, the bigger story here, kind of like top line, is this is a great example of, you know, when you have kind of very basic data comes out and then the kind of confirmation bias of people, everyone immediately just kind of jumps to their conclusion without taking a step back and looking for um, what's actually going on within the, within the, the weeds uh, mm. of the data. And, you know, everyone has confirmation bias, conservatives, liberals, everyone in between. But I think the relevant matter here is that most of the sort of prestigious uh, media outlets all are very homogeneous as far as the political leanings. So when you have that, where the people with their kind of hand on the lever and they all tend to swing in one way and that confirmation bias swings in one way, you have something like this, which is a perfect case study. These uh, test stores come out nationally. Everybody goes ballistic telling the same story about how, look, it doesn't matter for remote learning. But when you actually look at the studies that were done, rather than just this kind of superficial analysis, um, you get a very different story. Yeah, I, I saw that the, the, yeah, the, the Washington Post, uh, I think Eugene Robinson is the column, wrote a column to exactly that effect. And then that was shared on social media by Randy Weingarten, the teachers union uh, president, as if to suggest, yeah, this is, this is bad. This is a crisis for all schools, but equally because they weren't denying that there was really that much of a difference between the various policies. So yeah, I, I don't, oh yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say, it's just a great case study about how science and data are interpreted and represented oftentimes by the media. And again, I don't wanna say that liberals or progressives are, are more prone to confirmation bias than uh, conservatives maybe. That's certainly not the case. It's just that they tend to be the ones who run most of the uh, and work at the prestigious media outlets in our country. So you end up having a narrative that immediately, you know, just fired out of a cannon that everyone believes this thing. And unless you're and, you know, the average person is not going to be aware of this. They're going to kind of superficially see a, a, you know, a post on Facebook or maybe they'll glance at the Times and see something. But in, unless you actually are looking at the data itself um, and looking at careful studies done by um, experts who are looking into this, you're going to be um, have a very confused uh, understanding of what these data actually show. So I don't think that anybody who has a child, knows a child, is a teacher, or knows a teacher can really credibly deny that remote learning obviously isn't as good as in-person learning and can observe with their own eyes the consequences of remote learning on kids. Um, I guess I'm curious, if is there any part of this conversation that's geared toward actually figuring out how to get kids back on track? That's a, that's a very good question. And you know, I would say one of the ways to think about it is that scores overall dropped. And when we wanna think about, you know, there are obviously are a multitude of reasons of why that happened, because we wanna understand why in order to understand how to fix it, right? And one of the things we have to think about is even the schools that were quote unquote open, the education in there was severely degraded and disrupted. Um, kids up until the spring of last year in most of the country were wearing masks. Their teachers were in masks. I mean, look, there's a reason why I'm not wearing a mask and you're not wearing a mask in this interview. Um, we would have trouble hearing each other, trouble interpreting those things. Imagine you're a little kid in the classroom and for a full year, your teacher has his or her face masked and all of your uh, peers have their face masks. There were quarantines happening all the time. So there is these severe disruptions to the learning experience even when they were in school. So I think one of the yeah. ways to think about 
resolving that is because there are some people in public health right now um, who continue to say we should think about uh, putting masks back on kids. Um, the governor of New York mentioned um, parents, um, she recommended that parents have their children wear masks again because of RSV. And um, so we need to, which is another virus that's um, uh, very prevalent right now. So we need to think about how all these sort of anti-virus um, uh, mitigations that we're putting in place, how these things impact the kind of day-to-day -day experience of children in a school building. And if they're yeah, going to continue well, if, to if, be in a, go ahead. If I could just get in, I'm sorry. I think it's really important to note that obviously we just came through a national tragedy, a global tragedy in this pandemic in which millions of people have died and that the choice to shut down schools, the length of the shutdowns I think is hotly in debate and what we now know about transmissibility etc., suggests that many schools should have been open and all earlier. But we should also keep in mind that before the vaccines were disseminated, a lot of people were very concerned about the fact that not just that kids would get COVID, obviously they die at lower rates, but were in fact dying, but that they could come home and infect their parents who were dying at much higher rates, including people who are young and Obviously, a lot of Americans do have pre-exist, you know, these comorbidities that was making it a really risky proposition. So I'm really interested in this conversation about how to deal with the fact that, unfortunately, sacrifices were made because there really was early in the pandemic a need to address the fact that the scary thing was happening that we didn't know about. And now I hope the conversation can tr transition from the blame game which is it's, it's important to hold people accountable who knew information about what wasn't, wasn't effective and kept schools closed despite knowing the better. But at some certain point, once people have been held accountable, we really need to be focused on how to get kids back on track. And that's going to take a policy intervention and not just the kind of kvetching that happens on the internet. But I really, I really do appreciate you joining us today, David. Agree. Policy intervention is certainly, um, I think, going to be a necessary thing rather than just people uh, complaining. Yeah, thank you. And we'll have more rising right after this. Following online criticism, Taylor Swift's music video, Antihero, on her Midnight's album has been edited to remove a scene that shows her stepping on a bathroom scale that reads, fat. Someone on Twitter wrote, I don't deny or diminish anyone's experience with eating disorders, but I am truly overseeing uh, complicated, personal, incredibly nuanced issues get reduced to the word fat. The video on Apple Music and YouTube no longer shows the, clo the close-up of the scale, but instead, Swift's clone in the video looks at her in disappointment. Variety says Swift and Apple Music did not immediately respond to requests for comment. Some people online are saying the inclusion of the word fat on the scale was okay. One Twitter user wrote, the ultimate self-loathing song video has been edited to essentially erase how frank and open T-Swift has been about her eating disorder. It's a song about self-loathing, not about you or me, it's about her. An editor at The Bulwark, Sonny Bunch, wrote, eventually I will stop being surprised by how dumb and or bad faith the average consumer of media is, and eventually I will stop being disappointed that artists keep giving in to the dumb, bad faith babies. Another Twitter user wrote, Taylor Swift fell for the post-art censorship. And I frankly agree. Um, the, the, it's not, the point was not to stigmatize fat people or being fat, but was depicting an experience that many young women and many just people in general have of feeling overweight or having negative self-body image uh, issues, even when they're not overweight at all. Uh, I mean, this is a, something foisted on young girls in a very damaging and destructive way. Um, she was depicting that with honesty. It's something true to her own life that she's talked about. Mm -hmm. You know, just what you just we can't use the word 
fat at all. This is getting very, I mean, she was well, that, using it in a, in a sense of having a conversation or depicting a conversation that happens all the time and something that mm -hmm. is fine to be talked about. So I, like, I, I, I'm truly lost on this one. So I, I also think it was fine, but the criticism wasn't that she used the word fat. The criticism was that they felt like the way eating disorders were, was, were depicted in the video was reductive. So I, again, I think what Taylor, Taylor Swift did was fine. I also think that it's, you know, I want to represent the critique appropriately. It wasn't quite as simplistic as, you know, some people are saying. Mm -hmm. I will say I would have supported Taylor Swift if she chose to keep it in. I should also support her decision to take it out. I think that some of the commentary is erasing her autonomy, frankly, and pretending, and we don't know what the truth is, but pretending that she had to bend the knee or else she was going to be canceled by a woke mob. And when this happened earlier in the year with Lizzo, some people actually very sweetly to Lizzo said on, on Twitter, hey, bestie, you're my favorite. I really love you. I don't love the word uh, spaz in your, in your video. I just wondered, wondered if you'd considered whether or not that was the best choice of words. And Lizzo said, you know what? I had never thought about it. I'll take it out. And Lizzo was very open about the fact that it was her choice. She wanted all of her listeners to feel comfortable. It wasn't that important to her. She hadn't given it that much thought, and so she took it out. And so I don't know if Taylor Swift felt like oppressed in re-editing the mm -hmm. video in this way, or if she thought, hey, like, I want to just be basically polite. If I were at a dinner party and someone said they didn't eat shellfish, I wouldn't make, I wouldn't feel owned or canceled for having to serve something different. Mm -hmm. It's just life. I don't know that every single one of these issues is a cancel culture issue, and I think she would have been fine and justified in her position either way. I guess I, I don't disagree with that. Fine. She can do whatever she wants. It's her video. I, I just think the underlying sentiment is silly. That because she still depicted the same, she ended up depicting the same kind of storyline is what it sounds like because now this other person representing her expresses some kind of disapproval of her physical state just without using the word fat. Yeah. So it's like it, it was addressed in a way that just erases the word without changing any of it substantively, which means yeah. right, it's a small it's a very small edit and I don't really care and if maybe she thought that was better, fine, but then it does make it look like it was just even like you showing that word on camera like it's some very forbidden Voldemort type term yeah, I mean, which that I find I, I've never had an eating disorder, so I can't really speak to what people's mm -hmm. actual concerns are there. But I do think that the irony is that Taylor Swift probably put the word fat because she was trying to avoid putting a number. Because for Taylor Swift, whatever, I mean, she's talking about an eating disorder, not an actual like health-based desire to lower one's weight. So whatever Taylor Swift, who's always been a slender woman, saw on the scale that made her feel fat was probably mm -hmm. going to be a number that made a lot of viewers feel like, oh, I guess I'm fat too. I, I must be morbidly obese if Taylor Swift thinks... 140 pounds or whatever is is fat, and so I, I would argue I would argue that the irony is that Taylor was probably already trying to be sensitive to her audience by not including a number, and so there is something I think I, I would agree that there is a a superficiality to the concern here. Like, do you not want eating disorders depicted at all? Do you want them to be depicted in a more substantive way? And is editing this frame out, like actually making it a more substantive conversation? Taylor Swift is someone who generally treats things sensitively, is very open and kind to her audience. I, I'm almost madder that this change being made satisfies the concern, because then that says just the concern isn't real. Well, but, the, but there is, right, an online community of some people who don't, don't want the term. They don't want the literal word "fat." They don't want the term stigmatized whatsoever. So depicting that, so having the word there and, and framing it as a negative thing mm. is is I think what a, 
it, I don't know how many people were actually, but this could be a situation where actually six people were upset. Yeah, but I if mean, people that's kind of what it feels that's like. That's something <laughs> what, but that is, I, I mean, I've seen, I, you've probably seen as well online, people on Twitter talking about it that way. So I presume that is the community of people who are upset by this, people who don't want the idea, or don't want it portrayed that anyone could think there's something wrong with being fat. I mean, that's obviously silly because she's being introspective. I mean, she's mm -hmm. being self-aware about how wrong it was to see herself as fat, not opining on whether or not the term is good or bad. Obviously, she saw herself negatively and as fat negatively. I agree. Negatively, that's and why that I think it's silly. But that is what they're saying, I think, that... Who is this they... Well, I don't know. We, have to, we can track I mean, down all six honest, people who like, are mad about this. One person can say Variety rolled a whole article. Would a media organization <laughs> ever write an entire article about just six tweets? Yeah. Surely this I, must be people are in the streets but, up in arms I mean, these, about this. They find one. Well, there was a, there was a piece um, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a week or two ago, about one Reddit post. Oh, it was conservatives were very upset about the idea that the thumbs up emoji was apparently wrong, verboten, you weren't supposed to use it anymore. And there were a bunch of mm -hmm. conservative mags who wrote about how these these kids are trying to cancel us for using the thumbs up emoji. And mm -hmm. it was based on one Reddit post from like four years ago. Yeah. BuzzFeed <laughs> is the worst offender of all of these. Uh, does this constantly is trying to create a trend. Oh, right. Often conservatives are mad that like this person was recast. And then you find what you find is there are more people mad at the idea that conservatives would be mad. So really it's the, it, it, we've created a totally false trend that contradict and the actual trend contradicts the false trend we just created. Yeah. Journalism in 2022. But uh, yeah. Well, what were your, we're, what was your view on the, on the album? Have you listened to it yet? I have not listened to it yet. I, think that she's a very competent songwriter and I support her, but it is not exactly my taste of music. Mm. I feel similarly. How about that? <laughs> it's been on a lot in my household and I think her music is just fine. I'm glad just your fine. wife's enjoying it so much. <laughs> More rising right after this. That was billionaire Elon Musk making his way into Twitter headquarters Wednesday afternoon ahead of the much-anticipated acquisition of the social media platform. The chief twit, as his Twitter profile now reads, is set to officially close the $44 billion deal by Friday with backing from big banks including Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, and Barclays. Hmm. That was uh, letting the sink in, if people didn't pick up on that joke, by the way. Since pledging to buy the social media giant back in April, there's been many back and forths, especially after signaling in July he would be backing out of the deal. You know how, how that went. This morning he tweeted a note directed at Twitter investors explaining his reasoning behind buying the platform, citing the future of civilization depending on having a common town square where a, quote, wide range of beliefs can be debated in a healthy manner without resorting to violence, end quote. According to Bloomberg, Musk also assured Twitter employees Wednesday that he does not plan to cut 75% of the staff. That was something uh, that was being discussed a lot. Um, so, there no, you well, that's, that's certainly good news. I mean, look, I, I feel like in this context, if you mention any of the verifiable bad labor policies he has overseen or any of the censorious activity that he has 
taken, you're sort of accused of just having a personal vendetta against Elon Musk, and I don't think that's the case, but I think we have to be clear-eyed about what he is likely and not likely to do. I also have end of civilization concerns and also very much value Twitter as a public square. It has not been that. There have been a lot of attacks uh, across the political spectrum mm -hmm. of people being banned, shadow banned, uh, bot piled, and the like. And I would absolutely love it if Elon really follows through on his promises to clean house in those ways. But as we talked about in a recent um, segment here, there are always going to be some kind of moderation decisions. And so the question isn't whether or not there's no moderation. It's whether or not there's going right. to be transparency and a lack of bias in how the moderation is Which applied. is something he has acknowledged. He, so more in that statement, he says, Twitter obviously cannot become a free-for-all hellscape where anything yeah. can be said with no consequences. Um, in, a, adhering to the, in addition to adhering to the laws of the land, our platform must be warm and welcoming to all, where you can choose your desired experience according to your preferences, just as you can choose, for example, to see movies or play video games ranging from all ages to mature. That is something I am very glad to hear because I have suggested this as a way out of our kind of moderation bias concerns is that as much as possible, it should devolve to individual user preference. So you could be a user who wants who wants all the kind of gatekeeping uh, that a mainstream media perspective would give you, or like, this is misinformation, this is Russian, whatever. And if that's the experience on Twitter you want, maybe you can check that mode. And if someone who is much, is much more free-thinking and open-minded and, and really doesn't want other people making decisions for them or just very light decisions about what they see, maybe there's a different mode. Maybe there's a mode you can check where you don't have pornography come across your feed. Twitter, unlike all the other social media companies, does allow hardcore pornography which usually doesn't come across your feed unless you really search for it. Although it does, it does happen to you in the trending topics sometimes. Yeah. If it could be a topic that obviously doesn't have anything to do with porn, but could when you click that, it could somehow capture uh, porn. I admit this has happened to me yeah. even while sitting in this chair while I've looked at what's trending yeah, on Twitter. Oh my God! Okay. <laughs> and sometimes that is news. I mean, there's a congressperson running that is pro-sex work and was participated in a in a porn video to show his bona fides recently. Uh, there was the to story show of what now. <laughs> you saw a lot more than that. Uh, <laughs> there was, you know, a story of who was, I don't want to besmirch anybody, so, but some Republican congressman, I think I remember who it was, who perhaps inadvertently had clicked like on a porn video on Twitter and people were making fun of, of him mm -hmm. for liking that scene. Um, so, like, sometimes it, it does become a newsworthy event. However, I mean, I think p porn... Porn is brought up, I've brought it up as kind of the stand-in, like thing that we can all agree shouldn't just be everywhere on the app, on, on this app anyway. Right. Um, but I, I'm a little, I'm, I, don't, I don't know how I feel about the idea of there being different user experiences uh, for people who like don't want misinformation because they're siloing themselves to frankly get a lot of different kind of misinformation because it's such a subjective category. And it's hard for me to see how that'd be different than just like blocking or muting people. Well, no, it, w it won't be different than that. It will be akin to that. But yeah, I, you know, I block people now who annoy me or just pester me constantly. Going to suck yeah, but, up all my attention. I say no. This but that's is different, bad right? use of my if, time. If you block or meet people, you, they're still in right. your online community, and you see when other people engage with them, their tweet will be blanked out. Mm -hmm. But you still have the option to. Unmute my point and is, see I, I trust is. users to make these kinds of decisions more than I trust 
the platform itself. No, I, so I, I get that. Shift the moderation to the. I, I get the that, but what I'm I'm level. asking is what the difference is between the users making the choice that they can make now in terms of blocking and muting, and the users making oh. a choice by completely siloing themselves in a "don't show me X category of thing" world. Well, I think there'd be more customization and more options, and going down that path could produce could produce something interesting. And then we we might find what the ideal level of moderation is because we'll see. Well, most users like it like XYZ type of moderation. Hmm. So it would be consensus-based. Uh, Musk has also made headlines earlier this week when he again weighed in on the Russia-Ukraine war, saying that he knew a way to put an end to it. His peace plan would entail Russia getting to keep the Crimea Peninsula that they took in 2014, and then Ukraine dropping its bid to join NATO. So you can imagine that did not go over well with President Zelensky and you know the Ukraine stands, as uh, <laughs> Pots of America called them. Uh, I, I saw an article, there was a column in the Daily Beast from an international relations professor type person, just absolutely you know, furious that Elon Musk would offer this bad, bad opinion in his view on the subject. I don't find his view on what should happen to be outside the realm of permissible thought. In fact, I don't even think it's particularly wrong. Um, so, uh, no, nor do I think... Having an opinion on, you're not allowed to have an opinion on Russia, Ukraine, unless you know you're you have like a master's in international relations and or are in the State Department or are about to be on the corporate board of Raytheon, right? This is this is experts yeah. uh, trying to say that only you know only we get to discuss issues, and that went astray with COVID, and even before COVID has gone astray with foreign policy so many times. Very well educated people, very expert on this field, have been some of the hawkish, most misguided voices in Iraq, Afghanistan and other places. Yeah, I, I don't know why Elon Musk, at the end of the day, he's just a man. Like, as much as I disagree with the Democrats dogpiling the progressives over that letter, at least there are Congress members who have an ability to affect decision-making on the Hill. Elon well, Musk Elon is just, has... Wait a minute. Elon Musk is just a guy on Twitter saying his opinion about how the oh, war okay. should be resolved. And it's really... I mean, like, I understand saying you disagree with him, but it's it's odd for mm -hmm. it to be treat, treated like a national security threat the way that it's being treated, or like he has to be. I mean, he's he's getting people to prove his point about the censorious instincts that are out there, where people feel like it is quote unquote dangerous for him to be saying. Again, I don't know that it's it's obviously not his job to control what happens in Ukraine. It's none of our jobs to control what happens in Ukraine. They have self determination, but to basically articulate one option, which is not so far out of the realm of what a likely outcome would be and frankly was the posture before the war started that russia wanted ostensibly to keep crimea and for them not to try to join nato and then and then many people's telling it was the provoca provocation of nato expansion that triggered the unjust right. and illegal war right yeah no, I, don't, I don't get it i don't get it's, it either it's weird i don't get it either people are people are triggered as the kids say people are easily <laughs> triggered all right we'll have more rising in just a minute stay tuned Even more restructuring is set to take place at CNN by the end of the year. In an internal memo circulated this week, CNN CEO Chris Licht signaled jobs are most certainly on the chopping block. Mm, Licht cited the global economic outlook as a reason for the additional changes, saying, quote, 
we must factor that risk into our long-term planning. All this together will mean noticeable change to this organization that, by definition, is unsettling. These changes will not be easy because they will affect people, budgets, and projects. Oof, that's some straight talk. Licht was given the Herculean task of revamping the floundering network when he took the job of CEO back in April. Since then, he's slashed CNN podcasts, staple shows, and CNN+. Plus. Mm. Uh, I was watching after the Fetterman uh, Oz debate. I turned on CNN. Um, our uh, Alyssa Farah was on, mm. uh, former briefly hosted the show a few times, and some other folks, and I, I thought their commentary on the debate was very good in mm. that it absolutely conceded that Fetterman had done a terrible job and, and that the hosts um, a, a allowed the more Republican-leaning guests to press their case that this was just really a travesty for mm. Fetterman compared to the coverage on MSNBC, which was like barely acknowledged that yeah. Fetterman had did a bit. It was just like laser focused well, on how Oz yeah. was a threat on abortion, which I think is a fair point, but it, it just, it was, well, it well, was. The, the, the criticism should be, he did, there was a bad debate performance. His policies are still worth Democrats voting for. I mean, that's a perfectly legitimate that, argument. But yeah. what I did see from a lot of MSNBC types, and I can't say that I watched the post-election coverage on either of those stations, but I did see a lot of people making arguments that it was ableist to even say that Fetterman had done a bad job. That, I think, is where you're getting to this place where viewers lose trust. It's ableist now yeah. to tell you what I've seen with my own eyes. No, he... he performed right. poorly. It was very difficult to watch. And also, I want a right to choose, so I might vote for him is, is, right. a, is a view that people could have. So I think it's, uh, anyway, I think it's to CNN's credit that they did not, maybe some of them, to what I saw, it was not falling into that kind yeah. of, of trap. It was kind of brutally honest. Um, so do you, which you, is they're a, doing the right thing. I, yeah. I, no, I think, Chris, I think Chris Lick <laughs> might have a good plan for how to restore um, uh, CNN's, uh, to, maybe to its former glory, or at least win back some uh, independent, moderate Republicans um, who had really just, you know, gotten sick of it. All, all conservatives had, but I'm not, not sure you can win back. Like Fox News, diehard loyalists are probably st still going to keep watching Fox, but you you could maybe win back some people by being like le less just laser focused on Trump, laser focused on uh, you know sounding like a. Not like a progressive, because I'm sure you would have criticisms for that. They're not like a true well, progressive, yes. but you know what I mean, like a I mean, liberal Democrat, a I mean, establishment Democrat yeah. perspective. Shows like CNN and MSNBC have always had a much bigger appetite for having what they consider to be a palatable conservative, either mm -hmm. another never Trump conservative or someone like Alyssa, than they do having a progressive on. Yeah. When very rarely someone like Liz Brunig or myself or Katie Hopper ends up on one of those shows, like literally becomes a, a huge viral event mm -hmm. on the left because that's how rare it is. Even people who, frankly, we have a lot of disagreement with on the left, but reporters who cover the left, like David Weigel, if they get on shows like that, we think it's a cause for celebration. There is no regular leftist on The View, on MSNBC, on CNN, but all of those liberal channels have scads of Republicans. Half The View, or at least two-fifths two of The View at this point, are conservatives, but they would all... Uh, commit so, ritualistic I mean, Anna Navarro Japanese is not suicide. actually a right, but right never conservative, Trump conservatives, yeah, yeah, so, which yeah. which is a problem because they have people who don't actually represent mm -hmm. anyone re real in the country. Anna Navarro really represents no one. Yeah. Um, uh, Alyssa, I think, does represent well, yeah, people. She's, she's just very talented. Never Trump and, yeah, Republican. right, right. She was she, in the administration, she was in the, which I think is a great choice, and I think she's doing a great job there. Yeah. Um, but that even is anomalous. But 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 to my point again, they would rather have actual. Yeah. 
Trump person. They will put never Trump people. They will have people from Bush's former comms women holding down their primetime hour. They'll do all of these things before they would ever let a populist on. So I think that's why a lot of people on the left feel a lot of empathy for Tulsi Gabbard, even if they don't agree with all of her policies, because she has been someone who has ruffled feathers and been willing to step down from the DNC to endorse Bernie Sanders and take these hard positions. And there's a certain amount of empathy with what she's gone gone through um, with respect to how the establishment media has treated her. Well, we clearly think libertarian and leftist perspectives <laughs> are, are uh, not uh, in, in short supply in the mainstream media. So that's what we've gone with for our show. All right. Well, that's all for today. Uh, we'll be back next week with all the analysis we know you love. Um, I have an exciting weekend. Of course, a lot of Halloween parties for me. What about you, Brianna? Uh, I will be traveling and doing a, what my friends call a Jocktober party, an athletics-themed oh. <laughs> Halloween. How about yourself? I'm, uh, I've got a costume party today, and uh, this is my little hint for what my costume might be. You I lifted am, it so easily, Robbie. Uh, because I am worthy. Thing. I am worthy. All right. Don't forget, if you have questions for The Hill, you can now text them to The Hill's editor-in-chief, Bob Cusack. To sign up for that, you can head to hill.com. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We're also on Roku and other streaming platforms. Great. All right. Uh, See you in some clips over the weekend. And next week, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.